0: Rachel. The life of Jacob's wife, Rachel, was never an easy one. In the first place, she had Laban as a father. In the second place, she had Jacob for a husband. And then, of course, she also had a sister named Leah. Rachel was the younger and prettier of the two girls, and Laban told Jacob that if he worked hard for him for seven years, he could have Rachel. Rachel. So Jacob worked hard for seven years, but when the wedding night rolled around, Laban sneaked Leah in, in Rachel's place. And it wasn't until Jacob got a good look at her the next morning that he realized he had been had. Leah was a nice girl, but she had weak eyes. And anyway, Rachel was the one he'd lost his heart to. So Laban gave some kind of shaky explanation about that it was an old family custom and that Jacob would have to work another seven years before Rachel was finally his in addition to Leah. Now to be married to two sisters simultaneously is seldom recommended, even under the best circumstances. And in this case, it was a disaster. When Rachel was pinched for luck because luck was what she felt she was running out of, It wasn't long afterward that Rachel died on the road, giving birth to a son whom she lived just long enough to name Benoni, which means son of my sorrow, which Jacob later changed to Benjamin. Now despite these problems, Rachel's children were also God's children, and the last words were God's too. Is Ephraim my son? Is this my darling child? God asked. Now God answered God's own question with a simply complex answer. My heart yearns for him, as does God's heart for us.
1: A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 9. As he walked along the he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When Jesus had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam which means sent. Then the man went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, but somebody like him. While he kept saying, I am that man. But they kept asking him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. And then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put mud on my eyes. And then I washed. Now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? They were clearly divided. So they said again to the man born blind, What do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind But we do not know how it is that he now sees. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Why don't you ask him? He is of age. He can answer for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said... He is of age, ask him. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I don't know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you this already, and you would not listen. Why do you not want to hear it? Why do you not want to hear it? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, here's an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began, Has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sin, and are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out of the synagogue. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when they found him, Jesus said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we're not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin, but now that you say we see, your sin remains. The Gospel of John, chapter 9.
2: Okay, it's March. We're in the middle of Lent. We're also in the period of spring training for Major League Baseball. Also a period of discipline, preparation, leading, in its case, not to Easter, but to opening day. So today I'm going to talk about baseball. <laughs> a few years ago, actually probably now more than a few years ago, uh, two guys named Pete Palmer and John Thorne wrote a book called The Hidden Game of Baseball. And in it, they applied uh, all sorts of statistical tests and tools to reveal things about baseball that fans and people in the game themselves had really not seen before. Um, they pointed out that there was a direct mathematical connection between runs scored and wins. Now, you could figure that out for an individual game, but they said actually in the aggregate it works out as well. They were the ones that uh, took on-base percentage a very arcane stat and put it in for at least fans and newspapers into the regular uh, collection of stats that are reported. Uh, Even more prolific in that area of statistical analysis of baseball someone named Bill James uh, who did and still does uh, all sorts of statistical work to show things about the professional game that uh, he believes and others have often come to believe were not visible before. Um, dozens of new statistics were developed by Bill James and baseball fans as well as managers, scouts, owners and so forth uh, use them. Some of you may know him through the book written about him, Moneyball, uh, and the film which was a pretty good film, sort of related the book but not entirely, um, draws on the uh, impact that he had on the game in making it seen in new ways. each of them an example of taking something that was quite old and applying new lenses to give new perspective. Now, in Bill James's case, he didn't set out to do that. He went to college, then went off served in Vietnam, came back to Kansas, uh, to his hometown in Lawrence, uh, and started working as a security guard at night in a factory. I believe the factory made cans of uh, pork and beans. Um, And while doing that work, perhaps on the quiet nights at the pork and bean factory, he started to write essays on baseball. He started then to self-publish them. A few people found out about them, and things unfolded from there. He's now a published author with many, many books, many awards. Uh, He has his own website. And to prove he's really an exemplary human being, he's a consultant for the Boston Red Sox. In Cal Lutheran terms, Bill James discovered his purpose after college. He didn't wake up one day knowing what God had in mind for him. Rather, he sort of slowly discovered his passions and slowly discover that those were passions that others shared and benefited from him. His process of discovery of purpose was really slow. It was complicated and there were some twists to the road. For me at least, I don't know about you, but at least for me, I find that pretty helpful. Because living one's purpose is hard enough, discovering it can really, really be a challenge. It is, at least for me, and I have to say, I hear enough of that around on campus, even reading some of our Lenten devotions this season, hear the questions, the doubts about finding purpose. How, how can I discern my purpose? How, how will I know what God has called and gifted me to do? How can I be sure about that? And then, what if I haven't discovered my purpose by the time I have to declare a major? Or even scarier, especially this time of year for seniors, what if I'm about to graduate and I'm still not sure about my purpose? And then maybe scariest of all, what if my purpose changes? I think these fears can often distract us from understanding that finding and living out our purpose is a process that may never be complete. It's messy. We've been talking about messiness earlier this morning. And speaking of messy, how about that remarkable story from the Gospel of John that Pastor Scott read about Jesus giving sight to the blind man? How, how does that miracle happen? Well, the means of it are pretty earthly, pretty earthy, as a matter of fact. Jesus mixes saliva and dirt to make mud, rubs it on the blind man's eyes. The man then goes off, baths as he was instructed to do, and only then can he see. So in the story, the rubbing of the mud on the eyes is the first step. It doesn't bring sight immediately. And yes, Jesus works that miracle, but in I mean what a remarkably tangible way he does that. I mean, how human dirt, saliva, my kids used to say, Ooh, icky dad, that's gross. I mean, it's hard to get more real than that. So I'd claim that seeing doesn't just happen. It doesn't happen instantly. It takes time. It takes work. It takes grit. Life is messy. Our faith lives are messy. Opening our eyes is messy. Seeing our purpose is messy. Seeing Jesus is messy. Well, at least for me. Again, maybe for you, but at least for me. And it's also fascinating, the man doesn't see Jesus at first. He hears him, but it's only after he goes and bathes that he gains his sight. He's never seen Jesus. And then he gets all the questioning. And through that questioning, we can sort of follow the man's understanding of who Jesus is changes. He tells his questioners, whether it's the neighbors or religious authorities, what happened. But he asks, asks, where is Jesus? I don't know. What is Jesus? Well, he's a prophet. Then his parents get grilled, and they sort of kick the quiz can down the road. They go back to man, and at this point I think he's getting pretty frustrated, and he sort of says, look, all I know is I couldn't see, and now I can see. It's only after he's cast out and after Jesus comes to find him and he sees Jesus, that he's able to tell him directly, Lord, I believe. And we all know the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, where he sang the words, I once was lost and now am found, was blind, but now I see. And the backstory is that the writer John Newton underwent a conversion, uh, riding a ship in the middle of the Atlantic in a horrible storm, and became a an evangelical Christian after growing up with really no faith at all. Now again, it sounds like a pretty immediate and clear-cut story, the bolt of lightning, the flash of light. But even that's a little bit more complicated. Newton himself said that his own conversion process took much longer than that. The words that he wrote in that hymn he wrote 25 years after the event, a generation later. So if mud was applied to his eyes that night on the ship, the seeing came later on. Okay, back to baseball. I know you were wondering when I was going to get back to that. In the hours before a major league, and I think minor league game too, uh, the dozens of baseballs, the boxes of baseballs that are going to be used in the game are taken by the umpires, and they're rubbed with something that's called, and this is the official name, baseball rubbing mud. It comes from New Jersey, which might be a cause for alarm. (laughs) When applied to the baseball, it allows the pitcher to get a better grip on the ball. But that's all well and good. What's really important is it's then that the pitcher throws it, and will throw it again, and every once in a while the batter will hit it. And on occasion, particularly with some infielders and outfielders, the fielders will catch the ball, and it sort of repeats from there. So again, the application of the mud is only the first, important, but first step in a process. The important part, the action, the game itself comes later. As with the blind man in the story, the application of mud sets the stage for what is significant. So, what is going to be our mud? Discovering our purpose does require us to see in new ways. It does require the application of mud. And we don't know when it will be applied. And even when it is, we don't know when we'll be able to see. It doesn't happen all at once. So as we wonder about our purpose, or at least as I do, and wonder about what God is calling us to do, we shouldn't fret if we don't see right away, but find joy in the realization that we will see. That we be ready for the unexpected mud that helps open our eyes to our purpose.
1: And for that, I say, thanks be to God. Mm -hmm. Amen.